So it was uh, 1991, and Rose and her husband, Eliezer, moved into their new home in Bria, California. And they were so excited. They were buying their first home. They were excited about the neighborhood. And like a lot of people who are looking for a house, they really weren't paying that much attention to all that was going on in the neighborhood. They found the house they liked. The neighborhood seemed fine, but they didn't look that deeply. And a few weeks after they got into their neighborhood, they began to notice that there were some challenges. Uh, For instance, one thing that they write about was that standing on the street corner would be these young boys with baseball bats, and they really weren't waiting for a pickup baseball game. It wasn't that kind of neighborhood. They knew that the neighborhood had some challenges, but the longer they lived there, they began to hear about the crime. They heard the fear in their voice of their neighbors, and Rose and Eliezer, they were believers. They followed Jesus, and so they did what Christians do sometimes when they wake up to realities that aren't that pleasant. And they began to pray about it. I worked on staff with a guy once, and uh, we would be talking sometimes about challenges in the church. And then at some point in the conversation, somebody would say something like, maybe we should pray about that. And this staff guy would say, oh, Lord, has it come to that? Uh, you know, somehow we don't always run to prayer. But Rose and, and her husband began to pray about it, and they wanted to do something. So they began to think about this defunct group they had heard about in the, in the community, this neighborhood watch program. So it wasn't really operating. So they talked to a few neighbors, talked to several actually, and held a meeting about it. And six people showed up, those two and four more. And the very next morning when they got up, they walked outside and spray painted on the side of Eleazar's truck was the, was the, the communication, um, keep our secrets safe. They knew what that meant. Don't Don't start poking your nose in where it doesn't belong. Don't start looking around here. And so they were just overcome with the challenges that were in front of them. They believed they had followed God where he wanted them to go, but they didn't know what to do. And Rose had a particularly soft heart for the young people in that community who were being pulled in the wrong way. So after some prayer and after looking candidly at what was going on, she thought what this community needs is is an after-school tutoring program. She didn't know if there'd be any real interest in it. She knew there was nothing like that around, and the programs that were available were very expensive. And so she decided with her husband to clean out the garage. They got it emptied, got it cleaned up. They put out flyers all over the community, and they said, uh, free tutoring after school, get your homework done, and there's free lemonade. That was the entire pitch. Well, a few days passed, and they were on the eve of doing the event. They prayed about it, and the next day, When it was all said and done, the doors were open. Twelve kids had come in and got some tutoring and had some conversation about school, but a lot of conversation about life as well. In 1991, it was 12 kids. By the year 2000, they had 200 kids a day in 12 different locations because this couple decided to look at what was going on and ask a very simple question. Is there anything that we can do about that? Is there some way we can begin to step into that challenge that we see. See, what, what, what is going on in the heart of every one of us is significance. Uh, we all want our lives to count. Our days on this earth in light of eternity are pretty insignificant. I, you know, at best, we're going to get 70, 80, 90 years, perhaps, if we're lucky. But even though they're insignificant, that doesn't mean they have to be unimportant, our, our lives can make a dramatic difference, and today in the passage we're going to look at, we're going to see a couple of dynamics that I'm going to try to turn you on to. And one is I want you to begin to get a bigger picture of just exactly how God can use your life. Your life can, in fact, be significant. It, it can truly make a difference. And yours might not be in a tutoring program. You may not, like our strategic partner at New Life Mission, Felix, get up every day and, and feed 10,000 people meals this year. He'll do over 10,000 meals this year. We'll help him do that. You may not run a center like the, um, the, the, the healing center down in Tri-County where they'll help people find a job, give them some job training, pray with them, uh, give them some practical relationships and development tools. You may not do that, but your life can be significant. In fact, if you've ever thought, I would like for my life to count, when you feel like that, when you think like that, you're thinking exactly God's heart for you. God has put, the writer of, of an Old Testament book says that eternity, God has put eternity in the hearts of humankind. 
And that is that, that we, are, we long for our lives to count, that even when we're gone and we're not breathing anymore and we're pushing up daisies and all that good stuff, even when that happens, we want the impact on our, of our life on this earth and the people around us to have mattered. And I want to be perfectly clear with you today. It can and it should. And Jesus gives us practical insight on why we should run after that. But I also want you to understand that everything in your life is going to conspire against it. Because as much as God has tapped you on the shoulder and said, I see in you something, I will use something in your life, you have an enemy of your soul that will kick, he will punch, he will jab, he will trip you up if he can and keep you from pressing into what God has for you. And in our all-in message series, we've been saying, well, what, what, if, what if we pulled out all the stops and we went ahead and pressed into all that God has for us? I don't know if somebody's ever going to stand on a stage, perhaps, and tell your, your story like I've just told a little bit about Eliezer and Rose. But I can tell you, all around this church community, there are people who are pressing into greatness, and they're doing it in ways that aren't always intuitively obvious to everyone. I, I see it every time a busy person carves out time to serve in our kids' ministry. I mean, these are heroes. These are people who... Sometimes they don't even get to see the fruit of the seeds they plant for years and years and years. We have been as a church committed to children's ministry from our very first days. There hasn't been a day we haven't been because I personally was impacted by very busy people who really didn't have time, but they carved out time on Sunday mornings to meet with me in a Sunday school class. And they usually had carved out some times before then to get ready to make that time count. Because they knew that a few minutes spent with me talking about Jesus could make a difference. And oh my goodness, it did. Uh, this week, in fact, just this morning, I heard about a small group leader in our church who's making some time to go to the hospital with the wife whose husband is having surgery. To just sit with her and be with her and be present with her as that thing happens. This guy's busy. He's got stuff going on. He doesn't have to do this. In some regards, he'd rather be playing golf. But he's carving out time to make a difference, to speak into a situation. I think about every time somebody gets up early, a mom gets up early and she makes breakfast, perhaps it's just cold cereal for her kids to get them ready for school because she knows that it's her job to make an investment in them and she feels like, man, if I can make an investment in my kids in a way that's meaningful to them, perhaps it'll make a difference in their life. So she gets up morning after morning after morning and she does the thing and the kids are never really fully grateful. It's never the right kind of cereal. It's never enough time. It's let me sleep a little bit more, but she does it. Because she believes that this investment over time will make a difference. And it will make a difference. Today's message is not complicated. But it's difficult. It's not hard to understand. But the principles of what we're going to talk about today are sometimes hard to put into practice. We start our story, really, with Jesus. And he's been in Jericho doing some ministry. Some pretty cool stuff. And his disciples are all around him and they're seeing him do great stuff. And man, they are attracted to what Jesus can do for them. And they're attracted to the power that he seems to have and the popularity that he seems to have. And they're attracted to the fact that maybe they could have a part of that too. By the way, that's not all bad. Your connection to God will open doors for you that you were not on your own, ever going to be able to open. It will give for you a sense of significance and purpose unlike anything else. It's not all bad, but while the disciples weren't all wrong, they weren't all right either. They really, really wanted, in a good way, significance, but they didn't really understand at all how to get there. They wanted it, but they didn't understand how to get there. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to acknowledge that in most of us, I hope you haven't given up yet, God wants to do significant things in your life and through your life. There are, going to, there are things that he wants to do by his spirit, empowering you in this broken and dark and hurting world to bring healing and light and health. And he wants to use you to do that. I hope you haven't given up. 
And even though that's true, and I bet you it's true for most of us in this room, the deepest longings of your heart is that that would be true, that your life would in fact do that, that you haven't wasted too much time, that there isn't too much regret, there isn't too much darkness in your life, that God can still do great things. I bet for most of us that's true. Even though that's true, for a lot of us, we really don't know how to go about it. And in addition to not knowing how to go about it, sometimes we're so focused on the thing that we want to do that we forget the other side of the coin that I'm going to tell you about today that to me is just as exciting as what God empowers us to do. So Jesus has been in Jericho doing great work, and the disciples are amazed. And on the way out of Jericho, there's a conversation between mom, Jesus, and a couple of her sons, and it goes something like this. Jesus When you come in your ultimate power, we've had hints of your power. We know there's going to be great things happening. But when you come into like the real day when you're really in power, Jesus, I want you to let my two sons sit on your right and your left hand. Like, I know you got 12 disciples, but my two sons are the more important ones. So, uh, Jesus, when you're like really in your power, would you put one here and one here? Now, the mom wasn't all bad. She wasn't all bad. Now, she misunderstood some stuff, but what she wanted for her kids is what every mom wants. I want their life to count. I want it to make a difference. I want them to have a position of honor and significance. And maybe it was a little dark. Maybe she just wanted, you know, everybody kind of bow down and maybe she's connected. I don't know all the stuff going on her, but it wasn't all wrong. But Jesus is going to use his next few words, and then he's going to use his next few actions to inform that mom, those two boys, the other ten disciples, and the entire crowd, and us, The path to greatness for God. So they've had that conversation, and Jesus says, look, guys, in this world, the way people try to get great is as they clamor for position and title. They fight, they climb, they crawl, they scratch, they backstab to get the position, to get the title. That's the way it is in the world. You've seen it. By the way, you've seen that too. You have probably lived long enough to have a few people who were really, really eager to get ahead, and you were in their way. A little maxim in life, don't ever stand between an eager jerk and their goals. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be fun, all right? So Jesus says that's the way the world works, but in Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 26, I don't have all the verses in your sermon notes. I have a few of them there for you at the end. You can go in your leather-bound Bible or on your phone, and you can follow along with all of them. Beginning with about verse number uh, 26, I want to read for you Jesus' words to them as he has described what the world is like, and then he uses this phrase, not so with you. So this is how it is. People clamor, scratch, backstab, talk behind people's back in order to get prominence, to feel better, to get the title, get the position, but not so with you. So if you want to be my disciple, the people who are following me, that's the way the world is, but you are different. Let's pause for a moment and talk about that word disciple. The word disciple is a really great word. Jesus said, in fact, it's put for us on the sign over here in Matthew chapter 28, among the last words he said to his disciples, to his followers was, go into all the world. Your commission is to go into all the world and you're to make disciples. So it really begs the question, what's a disciple? So a synonym term for the word disciple, a good one is the word student. A disciple is a student. The challenge is, is when we think about students in America today, we think about our kind of American modern system of education. We think about a student perhaps sitting at a desk, maybe taking notes. And a student then is a learner of information. And that's true. A disciple is a student who learns information. But that is only part of what a disciple is. A disciple is not simply a student who learns information. So the goal is not more information. Information is part of it. The goal is actually to be transformed by the information you learn. It's actually to be changed by the information. The information alone is not the goal. That's why you can have some very smart people who can answer all the questions, but they're bad disciples. You can be very smart and very informed and be a horrible disciple. It's very possible. And you've probably encountered a few Christians like that. Uh, They're not fun to be around. They can talk everybody under the table. They can quote better. 
But the truth is, is their attitude and their disposition leaves everybody feeling worse. A, a disciple is a student, but he's not, and she's not just a learner. In fact, the, the, the cousin of the word disciple is not, perhaps the best word is not student. The best word is discipline. A disciple is disciplined to learn, yes, but also to press into the learning, to apply that learning to their life. Not enough to know. To know and not do, ultimately, is to not know. A disciple knows, gets informed, grows, gets more knowledge, but that knowledge, if we're not careful, simply puffs up. That's what the Bible says. That knowledge instead is supposed to give you a right understanding. So a disciple, a disciplined one, is pressing in. And you know this word discipline, don't you? Can I tell you something about discipline in your life? You love the concept of discipline. You love it. I love it. In fact, here's the truth. Today, can I tell you what I'm thinking about right now? I'm hoping all of you get more disciplined. Because my life's easier if you get disciplined. In fact, I hope my wife gets more disciplined today. If my kids are in the room, I don't know if they are. I hope my kids get more disciplined. Because when they exercise self-discipline, my life's just easier. I love the concept of discipline. For all of you, I'm not so keen <laughs> on discipline for me. Now, I love the impact of discipline. I love what discipline does for me. I love it when I've been disciplined and I get the results of discipline. But I don't like discipline. I love what I get out of it. I don't love it. But a disciple at their core is disciplined to press into knowledge, to learn things, but then to apply them to his or her life. So Jesus says to my followers, here's how the world does it, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That's interesting. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. That's God-honoring. It has to be tempered. It can't just be prideful. But Jesus gives us the secret how to be great and to have it in the best of ways. He says, whoever wants to be great which is honorable, must become, and this is the word that begins to shift the paradigm, must become a servant. Now, Rome is in power in the New Testament. Two-thirds of the inhabitants of the city of Rome are literally servants. And throughout the Roman Empire, there are servants everywhere. So the concept of being a servant, being a slave, is very well known. And it's not a position to be desired. Most people who were in slavery, in servitude, in Rome were there as indentured servants. Either they, their parents, or their grandparents had spent more money or acquired some debt. They couldn't pay it. So they sold their services into a system that was supposed to give them a chance to earn it back and to buy back their freedom. But it was really designed so that once you were in, you almost never could get out. So there was generational servitude that was happening there. In Romans, Jesus said the path to greatness, so think Caesar, think the leader of a Roman army, think, think the person of significant power, prestige, that's what comes to mind, the way to greatness is to become the least in this Roman empire, is to become a servant. Now he's saying this because there's just been an argument with the mom about who gets to sit on the right hand and left hand of Jesus. Whoever wants to become great must become your servant. And whoever wants to, where am I? And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then verse 29, he said it, now he's going to show it. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by... They shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Verse 32, Jesus stopped. Would you say that phrase with me, that two-word phrase, Jesus stopped on the count of three? One, two, three. Jesus stopped. So he's leaving Jericho, and he's going to Jerusalem. It's a well-traveled road. It's a little scary. It's the very place where he's going to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, that there was a person going down 
to Jericho. He's going the actual, the other way, up to Jerusalem. There's a well-known road. And while he's there, he's just done some profound ministry. He's just done some profound teaching. He's just done some incredible teaching. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And in just a few days, he's actually going to be hanging on a cross. Like, we're, we're at that point in the story. He's about to give the biggest display of servanthood, of being for others that could ever be done. The Bible says it this way, greater love has no one than a man who lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus is about to give his life. So he's about to go do his most important work. He's busy. He's significant. It's important. In fact, one biblical writer says it this way, that Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean much to us in our modern context, but in Bible days, a flint was used to start fires. And so when you would strike a flint with metal, you would get a spark, and if you had some tinder there, you could begin a flame. And so when Jesus sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, what it means is is nothing was going to distract him. And when distractions come to him, they they glint off his face, and there's sparks. There might be some action, but he's undeterred. He's going to keep moving in the right direction. So he's very busy. He's very much on mission. He's going somewhere important to do important work. But, and you said it with me, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. So, a couple blind men get healed. That's the great thing that happens in the moment. I want to tell you so much more is going on in this passage. In this passage, there's at least three things going on where Jesus is going to live out in a Real-life example, the lesson he's just tried to teach them as he talked to them about becoming a servant. In fact, I think if you look at it, some of what Jesus did in just these few verses, it'll show you and me how to not just desire greatness, but to actually press into the greatness to which we are called. I think we get not only a hope to be great, I think we get some of the mechanical process to actually start walking towards the destiny that we long for. And I hope you're a Christian here today. I do. But the truth is, is some of the stuff we're going to talk about is true, whether you're a believer or not. It's just true. It'll help you. And the path to significance and greatness is not typically found in the natural way people think it's found. That's true if you're a Christian or not. But if you are a Christian today and listening, I want to be clear with you. You're not expected today to be impressed with the insight. You're not expected to learn it and regurgitate it in some other place. You're expected to hear this, take it in, and then exercise the discipline of a disciple to walk like Jesus walked. To let him mold you and shape you and make you more like he is. That's your call today. And I want you to see three big things that are simple to understand and incredibly difficult to do. Three big things Jesus did. They're clear and uncomplicated and challenging. You know what this dynamic in life is like. You know that if you want to lose weight, it's not difficult to understand how to do that. It's not. Right? You take less in. You do more activity out. That's not that complicated. But my goodness, isn't it challenging? And you want to get in shape? You want to build it up? You want to get that six-pack, whatever it is, right? Not from the fridge, but the one here. You want to do that? It's going to require some effort. It's going to require some effort. That's not difficult. Same thing's true today. So on your message notes, blank number one. You already said it, but let's put the word down on the blank. Stop. S-T-O-P. When Jesus wanted to show his disciples what he was telling them so they could get it, he wasn't trying to impress them with his knowledge. He wasn't just correcting them to correct them. He wanted them to be able to pick up what he was laying down. He does, in practical form, what he tells them about. That makes him a great leader, by the way. 
He doesn't just tell the truth. He shows the truth. He lives the truth. He models the truth. In fact, the whole mission of his life is to model what it is to become great, to lay down his life for his friends. Do you know when Jesus was at the pinnacle of his greatness? It was when he was hanging on the cross. As far as his earthly life is concerned, he was at the pinnacle of his greatness when he was hanging on the cross. And the irony is, is nobody looking at him day, that day thought he was great. Nobody looking at him thought he was great. Nobody wanted to trade places with him. Nobody wanted to take his place. Nobody wanted to be like him. But the Bible says, literally, that Jesus literally was at the pinnacle of his greatness when he fulfilled the mission for which he came, when he gave his life as a ransom for us all. So he's going to show mechanically how to do some of this. And before I walk into this, I want, I want, to, I want you to get, you can do this. I want to help you understand two dynamics at the same time. See, this desire we have for greatness over here, this is something that you want to happen through your life. You want your life to cast a shadow. You want it to last after you're gone. You want, in an ideal world, for your kids and your grandkids and your community to be impacted by the life that you lead. And all of that stuff is God-honoring. You want your life, you want something to happen through it. And I think that's often the beginning point of the contemplation of greatness. Not the ending point, it's the beginning point. And so I, I talk to young men all the time, 15, 16, 18, 25, 35 years old. And there is in them this desire for greatness. I talk to, to young ladies and they, they want their lives to count. And it is so God-honoring. And in fact, it is so God-honoring that the enemy of your soul wants to pollute it and convince you that you can have it without following God. That you can have it if you just follow your instincts. You can have it if people will do the right things for you. You can have it if you get the title or the position. So the desire at its core is honorable, but there is a struggle to understand how to get there. So the first half of what we're talking about today is the easier part. The idea that you want to be great. You want your life to count. Parents, that's what your kids want. Uh, part of why they're trying to clamor for independence, they want you to some degree look at them and say, I see in you potential and capacity, and I'm proud of the person you're becoming. I see in you the measure of a man. I see in you the measure of a woman. So they clamor for that. They resist because they don't want the umbrella anymore. They want their own thing, and that's honorable to a point. It's very healthy how they go about it determines whether or not you're enjoying the process and they're enjoying the process and how you respond to it. So the idea that you want to be great is awesome. I applaud it, but it's this other side of the coin that doesn't get enough attention, I don't think. So this is the side that says what's going to happen through me. God is concerned about that. That's part of his plan and dream for you. But over here, it's the what's going to happen in me. What's going to happen through me and what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen out of my actions, out of my life, in my impact? And what's going to happen down deep inside of me in the internal parts, making me to be the person who, I, who I'm going to be? This gets all the attention. Make your life count. Tell stories how that you started with 12 kids and ended up with 200 a day. Uh, tell stories how you're feeding 10,000 people or 10,000 meals. Uh, tell, tell stories how dozens of people find jobs. Honorable. But for the follower of Jesus, for the disciple, the through you is only half the journey. In fact, here's our truth. If you and I don't allow God to do to us what he wants to do to us, what he wants to do through us is not likely to occur. For Jesus... The priority is what's happening to you, and when it happens to you, it can happen through you. You see the difference? We want to short-circuit it. We get the desire, we get the longing that's honorable, and we want to step over the process and arrive at the place of destiny. We want it for ourselves, and we want everybody else to see it too. It's not wrong. But for the follower of Jesus, if that destiny is really a gift from God, if that longing to be significant is really a gift from God, it can't happen until God does it to you. So what does he want to do? He wants to 
get you to stop. Let's talk about that for a second. Very busy Jesus, very much on his way. And while he's going, there's a commotion. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And he's busy. There's crowds around him. And there's two blind men who aren't walking along. They're stationed in some corner of the roadway. And they're yelling. And at first when they start yelling, everybody's just like, just you know, leave him alone. He's got stuff to do. But they yell out all the more. And then the Bible says two of the most important words that I think give us insight into the work God wants to do to us so he can open the door for the work he wants to do through us. Is he stops. Can I, be, can I be honest with you? There are a lot of very, very busy people that you know. I bet you you're one of them. And it's real. It's not a pretend busyness. There's serious stuff that you got to get done. There's nobody more busy in this church than a mom with a couple kids. You are chauffeur, you're a cook, house cleaner, maid, you know. You, you win prizes in my book. You're busy. And here I am sitting on this stage saying that very, very busy people, the person who's running a business has work to do, the person that's you know, dealing with unexpected events in life, they got to clean up or, or, or complete out. There's a lot going on. And I'm saying to you that part of the success in pressing into your greatness is doing what Jesus did. It's actually stopping. Now, I'm not naive. You can't get out of the rat race completely. You can't. It, it, impossible. You're, you're never, I'm not asking you to clear your calendar. I'm saying that like Jesus, when you're in the middle of your very busy missions, whatever they are, your very busy assignments, whatever they are, they're going to have to be regular times where you stop. So very busy people, you know what they have very often? A to-do list. Now, sometimes people are very busy because they don't have a to-do list. That's a different conversation. That's time management. <laughs> we'll get to that. But very busy people often have a to-do list. And that's very important. But can I give you another list that's important for you to have? Your to-stop doing list. See, sometimes when you stop, it gives you a chance to say and ask this question. You might want to write this down. If I keep going the direction I'm going, am I going to get where I want to go? Uh, my daughter moved to Brooklyn this week, so y'all pray for us. We're in mourning. Very proud of her, though. She saved up, pressed in, and went. And so Jill and I uh, spent a, a couple days, drove up, drove back, crazy trip, pulled a U-Haul, and uh, we were going to take her, her furniture and help her get set up in her very expensive and very small apartment. Um, Good Lord, I pray for her because I'm assuming she's going to have to sell plasma and not eat and just to survive. So anyway, you know, we're worried about it. So anyway, we're in the car. We've stopped to get some gas. And Jill's asked me this question. She says, do you want to drive or do you want to sit and evaluate my driving? <laughs> Guess which one I picked. She drove and I critiqued her driving. And we laughed about it a lot after we got done arguing. And... Um, so anyway, here's the thing. More than once we had to stop because we don't know the city. We don't know where you are. We got the, the Google map thing, but it's, it's not always. And sometimes we'd pass under stuff. And get, so we'd have to stop and we'd have to say, if we keep going in this direction, are we going to get where we want to go? We're not really all that familiar with where we want to go. We just know we want to go there. So we'd have to stop. And on occasion, as we stop, we have to make some course correction. Right? That's all I'm saying here. The, when the Bible says Jesus stopped... It gives us a chance to think about, are there ever any moments in your life where you get to stop? See, when you, when you deal with busy people and calendar management, have you realized this yet? Calendar management is just values management. It's just values management. That's all it is. The values that you want to see demonstrated in your life. You plant seeds of value that give fruitfulness to the results that you want. And so you can be intentional about that a little bit. And sometimes we get so busy that what we have to do is hit the stop button so we can stop and say, if I keep going in this direction, I know I'm going fast, but if I keep going, am I going to get where I want to go? I, I, I want to make something clear to you. I, I believe you'll never arrive at the greatness that you feel called to that is probably from God. might need to be sanctified a little bit, but it, at its core, a, a hunch and a leading from the Lord I don't think you're ever going to get there if you just get on the treadmill and keep running. And it doesn't matter where you're going. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter how fast you're going if you don't know where you're going. Jesus stopped. So, you want to know what's important to you? 
It's, it's not original with me. It's just true. Take a look at your last six months and ask yourself, where did you give your time? Can I say something about the marriages that I honor and respect? They have a few things in common. One of the things they have in common is always there is some shared intentionality about spending time together. Some people walk. Some people travel. Some people have a meal together. Some people do the date night. There's a lot of ways to do it. But the commonality is, as all of them have said, the part of the greatness of our life is to have a marriage that shines a light to our kids and our grandkids and our community. And it's fulfilling to us as well. And all of the ones that are great, all of them carve out time. They're all busy. Some of the best volunteers in this church are incredibly busy people with demanding loads on their shoulders. But they want to invest specifically in the kingdom of God in a community like this one. So they carve out a little bit of time. At some point, what that means is they hit the stop button and they said, am I going to go where I want to go if I keep doing what I've always done? Or might I need to make a couple of changes? It gives you a chance to ask this question. Where do you make time in your temporary schedule for an eternal investment? Where do you do that? I'm going to tell you, if you want to become great, I mean really great, you're probably going to have to get a little bit more intentional with your time. And you have the same amount of time as everybody else. You do. The earth that you are on moves at exactly the same pace around the sun as it does for everybody else. You have the same amount of time. So what are you going to do? That's why the Bible tells us, teach me to number my days. Give me a heart of wisdom and teach me to number my days. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. Because you can with the time. Oh, your time in light of eternity might be short, but it is not unimportant. It is not unimportant. And I don't care if you have 10 years left to live or 10 minutes. You can make a difference with it. But you might have to stop, number two. You might have to look around a little bit. Or the word for us today is the word see. See. I'd like for you to see something here real quick. I'd like you to see this basic truth and accept it as true. That you're either spending your life or you are investing your life. You're either spending or investing. The same outgo, the same passage of time, it's either being consumed up or it's being planted for future use. And you can, if you see what's going on around you, you can get intentional about investing. I've lived just long enough. I believe it more than I ever have. If you'd have told me this when I was 25 and starting out with my family and the work we were doing, I knew it was true. I'd shake my head to it. But 25 years later now, it's so true. In a moment that life has passed. I mean, it's moving by, friends. And you can just go along with the flow or you can intentionally say, I'm going to carve out some time to make investments in the things that matter to me. In the last two years, I've had a chance to sit down with four different people and plan their ceremonies, their funerals for them before they passed. It's been incredibly crazy. Something I've always wanted to do. But we literally sit down and we wrote out things that they wanted. And they took a little bit of time, knowing that their time was going to come to an end. Didn't know when exactly. But we planned what they wanted to say. And we made an investment for that moment, so that that moment could be a gift to the people around them. That's a small example of what you can do. You can make intentional investment in your kids. You can make intentional investment in your marriage. You can make an intentional investment in the way you do your money. But you're going to have to see what's going on around you. And I want to tell you, this is part of how God wants to help you. He wants to give you what I like to call kingdom vision. Let's see what kingdom vision does. Kingdom vision has the ability to see the gold buried in the dirt of life. It has the ability to say, my marriage is here today. It's got some dirt, some crud. But there's some stuff here that God can do with it. He can redeem. He can heal. There's some dirt in the church. But there's so much potential. There's some junk in my life that's happened to me. I would have never chosen it. I didn't choose it. It was forced on me. So some of the gold in my life... But God looks at you and says, you're made in my image. You are valuable. I'll give you the best I have. I'll redeem it, and I'll lift you up out of that dirt. But sometimes you got to see with the eyes that God has. That's hard to do when you're in the thick of it, when you're, you know, 
feeling like you're being spit on again. It's very difficult. But if you'll stop sometimes and just look around, you might be surprised at what you see God might be able to do. In fact, I don't even think that you'll be surprised. I think the destiny that he has put in your heart begins to call out to you. Exactly as you get an honest handle of what's going on around you. And you have a chance then to say, what do I want my life to be like? Now, I'm not suggesting when you do that it ever gets easier. I'm just suggesting it gets clearer. And then number three. The word is serve. So it's stop, see, and serve. Can I be honest with you as a pastor for a second? The most direct path for your spiritual growth and your joy in life passes directly through serving. Let me me tell you why that is. When you serve other people, Jesus stopped. He saw these blind men. And then he said, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you? It's interesting. He just had a conversation about serving. He's on his way to serve all of humanity in the cross. But he stops and he looks at these two blind men and he really sees them. And then he helps them see the world as well. Literally. He invests in them. His time, his attention, what he has authority over. He he leverages his influence in in the world and in the kingdom and he brings that to bear on these people. He served them. Let me tell you what happens when, when, when you press into your greatness. God gives you a chance to see things, and then he gives you a chance to serve them. And he basically teaches you the lesson that his life taught. It's not in your title, in your position. It's not in what other people say, but it's in the quality of your heavenly Father's opinion of you that matters. Can I tell you what all of you want? I don't know if you know this yet or not, but this is what you want. You want the moment after you die, you want that conversation with your heavenly father to go like this. Here's what you want to hear. You want to hear him say to you, well done, good and, do you know the next word? Faithful servant. Yeah. Not well done, good and faithful title. Well done, good and faithful accomplishment. Well done, good and faithful successful. What you want, the highest compliment God can give for a life well lived. Well done, good and faithful. One more time. Servant. Yeah. For Jesus, the path to the thing through you that you long for, that you want, is in serving. And that's what he wants to do to you. He wants to change your definition, not just of the success, but how you get there. For Jesus, success isn't when you step on the pedestal. It's when you get down. The posture of a servant The night before he was betrayed, he got down, he broke bread. But do you remember what else he did? He took the towel, he got on his hands and knees, and he washed the disciples' feet. He served. They were so broken. They let him. The ruler of the universe, they let him. And by the way, broken people will let you serve them, and sometimes they won't acknowledge it. They'll spit on you. The very people you serve will abuse you. Your kids aren't always going to thank you. If they start thanking you too much, they want something. I mean, it's just it's the way it works. Your spouse may not see it. Your coworkers may not see it. But that doesn't matter because you know who sees what is done in secret? Do you know what the Bible says about that? Your heavenly Father sees what is done in secret. And do you know what the Bible says about it? He rewards openly. The secret is in you. It's to you. But the through you. It's what we want. But without pressing into the to us part, which is let God redefine how you come into greatness. Let him mold you more into the image of his son, which is the image of a servant. Think about what your heavenly father did for you. He offered you a relationship and a responsibility. When he called Peter and John and James and, and, and Andrew, the four fishermen, he used the same phrase. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Two two parts. Come, follow me. That's an invitation into a relationship with him. That says, I value you. I want to know you. I want to know your story. I want to be a part of you. I want to hear what's on your heart. I want to hear your dreams. I want to know you. And then he said, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you a responsibility. You already know how to work. You're not a fish. I'm going to make your life make a difference. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Relationships and responsibility. 
When people are offered relationships and responsibility, and you know what that says about you? God values you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to be a part of the work he's called you to do. You may not be a pastor. Most of you aren't going to be. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about becoming a servant in the exact place he's planted you. Even as you're on your road to do the other stuff, Jesus is on his road to Jerusalem. He's going to do important, but he stopped, he saw it, and he served. And we're still talking about it today. It's not an isolated miracle. It's him literally, literally living out the teaching. If you want to become great, become a servant. So dads, serving your kids. How you do it, the mechanics by which you do it, not being codependent, all, all that stuff matters. But it's part of the path to greatness for you that God has put into your heart. Serving your wife. Even as Christ served and loved the church. Ladies, just be honest with you. Serving your husband is part of the destiny. If you're married, part of God's destiny for you is to serve your husband. And it's part of how, whether he sees it or not, it's part of how you'll be made great. This lesson was driven home to me. I'll close with this story. Recently, again, my dad reminded me of a dynamic in our family. How my mom gave her life to Christ first. And God radically changed her. And the night that my mom became a Christian, and the minister pulled my mom aside, the same guy that had a conversation with my dad months later, and said, we want your, dad, we want your husband to become a Christian too. I'm going to give you the best piece of advice I can give you. Serve him. Stop the sarcasm. Stop the fighting. Give in to his wishes. Don't fight with him. Serve him. And your kindness will soften his heart. And about four months later, my dad, who was a hardened case, anti-God, bitter as bitter as could be, he bowed his knee literally at an altar and gave his life to Jesus. And if you ask him why, he'll tell you because he saw such a change in my mom's heart. She went from this sarcastic, independent woman of the 60s who can do it, nobody going to tell her what to do, to a woman who just served and loved her husband as unto the Lord and it literally opened the door for transformation for my family that will impact generations. God did something in her that allowed something to happen through her that literally changed the world around her. And it will happen for you. Why don't you grab out your Connect card? I give you a question on your notes that says, how do you want to get paid when you serve others? It's intentional to make you think about what fills your bucket. I'm not talking about money. But here's how you get paid. God does something through your life, but he does something in you, and he molds you, and he shapes you. If you're resistant to that, this will never happen. This partnership with God, God, mold me, make me to who you called me to be, more of you, less of me. It's essential to your greatness. You can't get one without the other. But it could be that you don't have a relationship with a God who loves you that much yet. So next step A gives you a chance to say, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. In a moment, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to say, God, wash away my sins. I want to follow you with my life. I want to receive the work you did on my behalf, how you served me. And I want to use my life to serve you. I want to follow you. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A, put it in the offering bucket when it comes by. We'll communicate, but do business with God when we pray. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. The way we begin the Celebration of baptism right here is we check the box. So just check it. We'll communicate with you. Next step, see, here's what it says. Maybe this morning, every morning, you'll pray this prayer in that 15-minute block of time. Father, open my eyes to the opportunities to serve you and others that you place in front of me today. And I'm telling you, if you'll stop and pray that prayer, God, I just want to see how, today, how can you use me? I'm just telling you, he will. He will. And sometimes it's going to energize you and excite you. And other times it's going to scare you. And sometimes it's going to frustrate you. But he will use it. And he'll not only do things through your life, he'll do things in you that you can't imagine. Next step, D says, hey, I'd like to sign up to serve this Saturday at our local missions partners. Remember, uh, first Saturday of every month we serve around here. So if you check that box, we'll send you that data. And you can join us this Saturday to serve with your uh, wife, with your spouse, with your boyfriend, girlfriend, friends, kids, whatever. We'll help you. And the next step, E says, I'll commit to packing and returning an outreach bag next Sunday. If you check that, we'll send you the list so that if you forget it, you always have it with you on your phone or in your inbox. Why don't you set that stuff aside and 
you call this church home, I want to give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. So um, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he washed his disciples' feet, he also broke bread. He said, this broken bread is my broken body, broken so you can be made whole. And he poured out grape juice, wine, and he said, this is my poured out blood for the covering of your sin. So we're going to take communion together after we receive our offering. Pastor Will will call us forward for that. But I was reflecting on this amazing investment that God made. And then I thought about the investment you make. I've asked you today to consider your time investment. Some of you invest incredible talent here. You bring some of the best skills you have to make this a very good church. And repeatedly, week after week, some of you bring your treasure you either online or you're in the bucket, put it in there. And we're able to use your time, your talent, and your treasure together to make a difference in this world. And I just want to be clear with you. It is not wasted. It is making a difference. Every week there are stories of transformation. In almost 15 years of ministry, there's under 20 Sundays that somebody didn't commit their life to Christ in this church and check next step A. That's pretty remarkable. You know how that happens? He's good, and you're faithful. He's good, and you're faithful. Thank you for that. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant. God, you elevated him to a place that his name is the greatest name that will ever be spoken. At the name of Jesus, angels bow down, knees bend Every tongue confesses, great are you, Lord. Father, today our prayer is that you would in fact make us like Jesus. You would make us to be a servant. I pray you'd help us to stop. I pray you'd give us eyes to see. And I pray you'd give us a heart to serve. Father, let us not just be drawn to the great things that you've called us to experience, the things that can happen through us, but I pray that you would energize us as well by the great work you want to do in us and through us as you mold and shape and transform us. Father, would you take our offering today? Would you take our next steps and would you use them for your good purpose, for the good of this community, for the good of your kingdom, to glorify your name? And Father, for all the men and women right now that are listening or in this room and they're saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I trust you. I want to follow you with my life. I pray that you would convince them today of your love, that they are now your child. Today is a new day for them. Thank you for all you're doing. We pray in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen and amen.